Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. Innate construction software transforms the way owners, contractors, and engineers manage projects and programs. With Innate, you get an integrated project controls platform that solves challenges in every phase of the capital project lifecycle. These are field-tested solutions that give stakeholders the information they need to minimize risk, improve operational efficiency, and control project costs. Innate, transforming the way the world builds. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. Project Chatter is sponsored by JustDo.com. JustDo.com is a cutting-edge next-gen project management portfolio platform which doesn't force you into a project structure or hierarchy. Think of it as the Minecraft of project management systems with integrated task-based chat, Gantt, Kanban, and much more. It's the only 21st century real-time platform available today. In this week's pod, we were joined by Paul Wesker to discuss project controls in design and engineering stages. Paul is a director of Adept Management, where he takes responsibility for the development of their project controls tools and services, as well as supporting clients and projects across the construction industry. Since 2014, Paul has been supporting two major rail projects. He is a mechanical engineer by background and has over 20 years experience in design management and project controls. In addition, Paul has spent time working in central government, where he managed a construction innovation budget, and as a researcher, where he developed some of Adept Management's innovative approaches to design planning and management. Well, Dale, another live episode. It was uh, very good, very interesting. Um, as we expected, you know, project controls in design and engineering is quite a passionate topic for, for many people. What, what were your main takeaways from that? Yeah, I think it was really interesting because we've spoken about this offline, Martin, with Fel as well around how you actually measure progress during design phases of a project. And it's really tough because there's a lot of ambiguity, the scope's not, not, not clearly defined, you know, if the baselines aren't really set and there's varying degrees of agreement, let's say, with throughout the various rungs of the organization, it makes it quite difficult. And if you can't set baselines, you can't change control them correctly. Um, and then bringing the commercial side of things as well, how do you get buy-in um, from engineers when you've set a, a schedule from, you know, I guess, a project manager's perspective. I don't know. There was so much packed into this episode. What what were the key ones for you? Yeah, I quite liked his emphasis on that project controls is not just for the construction stage. It, it's really important because that, that's probably the way it's it has been done historically. Um, there's so much that we can bring to the design stages of, of a contract just through that extra um, detail and, and scrutiny. Um, I quite liked his answers around how to get um, some of the commitments and some of the more soft skills that you need to get to, to get to um, really get the buy-in of, of some of the engineering teams, which can be can be difficult if they're not bought into some of the the original budgets and, and dates. So, yeah, some really interesting answers there. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Folks, this is our final episode for the year. Um, and thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, we'll catch you in the new year. 
Um, we hope you enjoy the break, and we will leave you with keep listening, keep liking, and keep paying it forward. Hello, project people, and welcome back to the final episode of the season, season episode 150, Big season milestone. six, huge. Um, it's been a, an interesting and fascinating year and, and past six months. Um, so thank you all for for tuning in every every week and when we have a new guest and being engaged and for your feedback. It's been amazing. But once again, as you've probably guessed, no vel for this episode, Martin. We've discussed this on numerous um, episodes. Have we found him? Nope. Still, still missing in action. Fair enough. Maybe he's taken his leave and he just doesn't want to talk to us anymore. But it's okay. We'll 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 find him. But how are you, Martin? What's been happening? Yeah, all good. Thanks. Yeah, just winding down for Christmas now. And yourself? Yeah, not 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 too much. Similar similar to you. Just winding down, and you know, it's been an interesting year. Um, but before we wind down too much, let's bring our guest in. I am live in person with Mr. Paul Westcott. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Good, good. Good to be here, and as you say, in person. In and person. in the fantastic city of Birmingham. Welcome to Birmingham. Thank you very much. My my first time um, proper, so uh, yeah. An interesting city indeed, one that I should explore more, I think. Martin's pulling funny faces at me, so I, I'm, I'm not so sure he... Yeah, Martin knows it. Yeah, if you don't know it, come, come pay it a visit. Yeah, definitely. City. We've, been, we've been, always been based in the Midlands, but uh, moved, to, moved to Birmingham itself about two years ago and not regretted it. Brilliant city. Nice, nice. Well, let's crack on. I mean, what a topic to end the, the year with, an episode. Project controls in design and engineering stages. Um, it's in the title. That's obviously your background, project mm -hmm. controls. Um, before we get into the topic, can you set us the baseline? What is your origin story? How did you get into project controls? Where did you start? Did you start in project controls? No. Who starts in project controls? Um, in fact, when we started, and I say we, I mean myself and, and my colleagues, um, I don't think project controls existed. I don't think we knew it as project controls. Um, I've got an engineering background, and I work for a multidisciplinary engineering company in the Midlands, which is why we're, based, we're still based in the Midlands. Um, that was over in Stratford-on-Avon. Um, and we were, um, we, we moved, myself and, and some guys that I worked with, moved out of engineering and into what we called then design management. Uh, and, and, you know, back then, I don't think design management was, uh, was an especially established discipline, and project control certainly wasn't. That was about, ooh, too long ago, Dale, like late 90s. Um, and we were developing design management services within that organization. And around 2000 into 2001, we, we made the decision to um, go and deliver those services outside of, of that organization and set up uh, the company that we work for, Debt Management. Um, we, we, um, so we, we were providing a design management service in multidisciplinary design um, you know, stage of, uh, of, of big projects. Um, typically, where there was a design and build form of contract in place, where the contractor's got some responsibility for the design, and maybe that's not their expertise, or that wasn't their expertise back then, and, and we were helping them manage the designers. Um, so design management, which was a pretty new discipline back then, and, and if I want to differentiate what we did then and still do now from what others might do, I'm going to use the term design process management. We're very strong on process, very... 
um, very much process focused. Um, and what we found was that to effectively manage a project, in this case, the design stage of a project, you had to have things like a plan in place. Um, you had to understand risk. Uh, you had to understand progress and the overall status of the project. And before we knew it, we were doing what we might now recognize as, as project controls. And we've done that ever since. And there's, there's three strands to what we do as an organization. One is design management, or as I say, design process management. One is project controls. And if you think of a Venn diagram with those two things overlapping, the sweet spot is in the middle, which mm -hmm. is, um, which is you know, project controls within, within that design and engineering. Uh, within that design and engineering stage, and we use some very specialist techniques and and some very specialist tools to to control that that uh, that part of the project. Well, that's the well, background. I am sure Val will really miss this episode because he professes to be in sort of what he calls digital engineering, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure he will will try not to make him miss it too much, or maybe we will. Let's see, let's see how we go. But no, that that thank you for sharing that. Um, there's definitely overlaps on multiple areas uh, within projects. And, uh, you know, I think that sweet spot between engineering and controls is is one that's often overlooked by a lot of organizations. Do you find that's still the case? I mean, you mentioned some very early years there. Um, yeah, certainly, certainly in that kind of environment where you're, you know, we're in design and build of some form or another, you'd see a huge amount of focus on the control of the construction stage of the project. That's where all the cost is, that's where all the risk is perceived to be. But there's plenty of projects around that have gone wrong because of failing in the management of design. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we like to talk about the resources that are required to deliver a job, equipment, labor, materials, contracts, paperwork, and permits, and so on. Uh, uh, and design information. Design information is one of the resources that you need to deliver the job successfully on, on a site. So manage the delivery of it, manage the production of it, manage the exchange of it, and the, and the maturing of it. And, um, and that, that, and I mentioned design information there, that that is what you're interested in in the design stage is information. The outputs, drawings, documents, schedules, specifications, and so on, or even the digital models are are, are just that. They're, they're outputs. They come about from the production, exchange, and maturing of information. And that's, of course, a bit more intangible than some of those mm -hmm. um, those things you might see on a site or, or, or the outputs. That's part, partly what, what makes it... Uh, what makes it such a challenge uh, to, to manage. So, yeah, in that environment of design and build, we've seen lots and lots of examples where a huge amount of effort goes into the control of construction, and relatively speaking, far less goes into the control of design. And we're all about bringing the same level of control that you typically expect to see in a complex construction process to a complex design and engineering process. So how, how does controls differ in the, the different stages of the project lifecycle? Does it differ drastically well in terms of the principles i'm not sure that it does but in terms of the kind of nuances of the process that you're controlling there are there are there are certainly some differences and by the way i'm not all about promoting design as being different in a in a really radical way and being different every time and in fact um if you go back far enough to things like the latham report and the egan report uh, now i'm showing my age they, the, you know, those reports talked about the repeatability of design and, the, and, and you know, criticised the industry for constantly reinventing the wheel when it came to the design process. So, there, there are there are some differences in characteristics between design and engineering and other uh, phases of the of the life cycle. But that's not to say that design and engineering on every single project is radically different to any other project. 
there's there's certainly some some uh, repeatability. So what makes design different? Um, well, I've mentioned the fact I've mentioned the fact that, that we're we're interested in the production and and exchange of information. That is certainly one of the major differences. So you're dealing with intangibles, and of course, information can have can be of a different can be of varying quality and completeness. Um, so you know, when you build something on site, you can say yes, it's built and it's fit for purpose, or it isn't. It's 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 got a defect, or it hasn't. Whereas when you're producing design information, there's a thousand shades of grey between you know it's fully complete and coordinated to ooh, it's based on a bunch of assumptions that we don't f properly understand and is therefore representative of some risk, um, or it can be just you know frankly it can just be completely you know it can be incomplete and, and really poor quality. Um, so the information-driven kind of nature of the process is certainly one of the differences, and that's one of the things that makes it really interesting. The, the other really big difference is um, is that it's an iterative process. It's not a linear sequential process. So when you come to plan it, um, you know, you plan a, a, a construction process, you use a critical path method typically, linear process, dependencies. When you plan design and engineering, You've got an interdependent process. You've got feedback loops in it. You need those feedback loops. And people try to break that iteration down into a series of, of sort of progressive steps of maturity. But actually, you know, when you come to coordinate interfaces in the design solution, um, it, it's not that easy to, to plan it that way. And what you really are talking about is, and I'm going to move now from iteration to talking about things like, concurrent working collaborative working you're talking about the design disciplines and others uh, clients specialist subcontractors uh, um, regulatory bodies whoever they might be coming together to make decisions at the same point in time working uh, you know working collaboratively to make those decisions to get you a coordinated um, uh, you know, to move the to, to move the design forward, so that iterative nature. You know, we don't often talk about iteration because we talk about collaborative working and concurrent working. But you know, that that iterative nature of the process, or that interdependency as opposed to dependency in the process, is one of the big differences. And then there's a raft of other things which also make it challenging and interesting. The huge numbers of stakeholders involved, the numbers of specialist disciplines, and you know, as more, as time passes, there's more and more of them. Um, the advent of digital engineering and changing the process, changing the way we think about the information that's produced, those those kinds of things are all are all adding to the uh, opportunity, but the complexity at the same time. So, yeah, it got me thinking as you were chatting there, Paul, um, getting into sort of project controls geek space in my head around sort of baselining and planning or planning before you baseline. How do you go about planning that out? What approach do you use? Because You'd probably, I don't know, in my in my own head, right? And and this is obviously you far more experienced in this area. I'm thinking, do I apply sort of rolling wave methodology or type of planning? Do I use planning packages? Uh, how do how would I baseline that? And then how would I track progress? All these questions come yeah. up in my head. What approach do you wow, use? That's a huge question. <laughs> so uh, we use a planning package like. Anybody else would use you, you know the big ones that were around, and we and we use those because that's what the client expects. That's what they've got there. That's where they've got their construction program or construction plan. That's where they want the design plan and the interface between them being the, typically the procurement plan. But we don't go straight there. We start by building a work breakdown structure, identifying the activities that need to be undertaken within that work breakdown structure, 
and talking with the designers about the inputs, the information inputs that they require in order to undertake those activities and then building that up into a full network. This sounds pretty much like good planning practice, I should imagine. Um, what we talked, you know, let me just repeat that though. We talked to the designers about their inputs. What information do you need to undertake your tasks, your activities? And you can go further than that and start to talk about the importance of that information, the criticality of that information, because some of it can be assumed if it's not if it's not available, and it can be assumed without adding a huge amount of risk or cost. But there is information that you really do want available, and not having it, not having it, and having to force an assumption would 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 represent a significant risk. So we talk about the inputs. Lots of lots of the time, the designers are more than happy to talk about their outputs as well, and who else uses them, and how important those are. But if that's the case, then somebody else is going to tell us about that because that will be one of their inputs. So we talk about the inputs. And then we use a matrix-based tool. We developed this before the advent of, before the, you know, before we put a debt management in place way back in the late 90s through a research program that um, the multidisciplinary engineering organization that I worked for at the time um, uh, sponsored. Uh, we developed this approach that, that uses a matrix to identify based on the inputs and, and remember that they're, 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 they form dependencies and they form interdependencies, so you can have circuits of inputs uh, around activities to identify where that interdependence exists and then and then talk to the design team about how to deal with it and this is why I translated iteration or interdependence into collaborative working because where you've got information flowing around in a circuit you you don't want that to go on for too long you want to bring the parties together to to, to achieve coordination because they always that, that, that flow that circuit always represents the need to achieve some some element of coordination so you bring those people together to achieve that. And then based on you, how long you think that's going to take, who's involved, what's involved, what workshops you need, because collaborative working is often going to involve workshop workshopping, you can then put that as a into your plan as a period of time and, and kind of um, work out how to represent that interdependence or that iteration in a in a in a linear process that is your program in your, you know, in your favorite, um, favorite planning tool. So, um, those are the sort of basic steps. Um, a lot of the activities that we would typically define are around decision-making. Some of them are around output okay. production. So drawings need to be produced because you need to price or you need to go out to tenders to suppliers or whatever those might be. And it's, you know, specifications and schedules and so on and so forth, technical reports. So there are outputs to be produced from the design process, but often you'd see a, a plan of design and it, and it looks almost entirely as though it's the production of outputs. Well, that ignores what goes on in order to get you to the point where you can confidently produce the output. So a lot of the activities that we talk to the designers about defining our plan would be around making decisions and getting requirements captured at the front end. We've all seen design processes, haven't we, where it looks as though the right set of outputs are in place, but the requirements have never quite been captured properly. And mm. what you've got is a design that doesn't really work. So making sure the requirements are there at the front end, the decisions are made, the strategies for how the the project works, and therefore making sure that's designed in, uh, getting all of that in place. Um, so we, we build a, a fairly detailed plan, kind of correspondingly, de you know, the detail that corresponds with the detail that's in the construction plan. Uh, for procurement and design as a precursor to construction. So detail, decisions, outputs, all of those things represented. Um, and, and, that, and that then forms, once signed off, uh, that then forms our first baseline. 
as a as a as a program. Obviously, um, running alongside that, you've got the cost forecast. So as you develop your program, you're uh, defining a resource requirement, and therefore the way the fee works, peaks and troughs in resource requirements, and those kinds of things you need to think about. And and so then you're forming a wider baseline of program and cost forecast and cost plan and um, and 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 scope. And we, we we had a conversation before this, didn't we, about scope, about mm. what we really mean by baseline is scope. You know, scope, and then and then with it, program and and cost. And then as the project is delivered, in answer to the second part of the question, which was about you know tracking progress or monitoring, I think you said. Um, so we, we use something that's a pretty much akin to the last planner approach. I don't know if you're familiar with last planner, whereby you take short-term look-ahead plans, uh, verify with the, the parties delivering the project, in this case the design team, that they can deliver to that plan on a short-term basis, week by week or, or you know, fortnightly every two weeks um, in some cases. Uh, and if not, you, you know, rearrange the plan to work out what can be done based on, on the readiness of the activities, the availability of the information, forming one of the major indicators of readiness. Um, and then we, and then we, through that process, through, through that period, that week or whatever it is, we, we capture the progress, we capture the progress. And by the way, we, we definitely do not capture percent completes. That means nothing in design. <laughs> oh, we, could, we could talk about that. Uh, yeah, we used, we used, we used to, do, we used to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, one man's 80% complete is another's 95. Um, and we always used to joke, you know, things, activities go from, you know, not started to 50% complete, 75, 85, 90, 95, 96, 97, you know, and they're never quite finished. And what, what we're really interested in, because we're, uh, we're you know, we're concerning ourselves with time, uh, is how much more time is needed to generate the information at the highest quality. Mm -hmm. So how much more time do you need to complete this activity and get that information to whoever needs it at the right level of quality? That's the only question we really need to ask when we're talking about um, you know, what we might call progress. Um, so that's how we capture progress. We capture the issues that are, and this is all part of the last planner approach, the issues or the root causes, if you like, that are stopping the design team from delivering and, and then the actions that are needed to overcome those those constraints, those issues, those, those root, root causes. And hey, b before you know it, you've got progress, which gives you a progress plan. You've got issues and you've got actions. And that feels a bit like we're now moving into design management, which is what we are. Um, and you're keeping your, you're keeping your, your projects on track uh, in, in, in as close to real time as you can get um, as, as best you possibly can. A lot of it sounds quite similar to sort of, I guess, agile, scrum, sprints, is, is it is it fair to say there's similarities? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 definitely. So a lot of it's about bringing people together uh, as as not not no. I was going to say as often as possible. That's that's not right. But yeah. at the appropriate time, at the appropriate level of, of of frequency. And you know, one of the things we've seen, and it's and it's probably got worse in the last couple of years with with the, the lockdown and now remote working is much more commonplace than it than it was even even before then. Um, is, 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 is just people don't talk to each other in between, say, design team meetings. You know, we'd have a typical project. You might see a, every two weeks a design team meeting. And um, you, occasionally you feel that that's the only time the different mm. disciplines involved in the design are talking to each other, whereas they should be talking to each other all the time, solving problems as they go through the process all the time and bringing people, bringing people together to have each other uh, have them all, you know, understand each other's issues and what, what they need to do collectively to deliver the project uh, is is definitely part of our thinking. So that very much aligns with, you know, agile and, and, and kind of scrum thinking, yeah, definitely. 
So how would you, I worked with um, a client that had a, was in the design phase um, and they were mandated uh, by their funders to track progress using earned value. And it becomes really difficult when you can't really track progress accurately, as you say, if it's, it can only be 99% once, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's 99% for like five months and yeah. you're like, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. How do you approach earned value within controls in the design space? So in a, in a, in a perfect world, uh, unfortunately we don't live in a perfect world, <laughs> but um, you'd, you'd use the availability or the production of complete information as your measure of value. This is one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about internally and discussing and debating with our clients. You know, what is value in design? What are the rules of credit for delivering design? And we've seen some quite good examples of rules of credit being put in place that are sort of loosely based around the definition, uh, you know, credit being, being based on, on information production on information maturity. That, 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 that's what you'd ideally do. You know, you've got thousands of pieces of information being exchanged through the design process, produced and exchanged. And, and if you defined those in terms of the value they represented, you'd be, you'd be in the perfect world. Um, we're not, as I say, we're not in the perfect world, but that's, that's, that's far too challenging. You know, it would take, it would take forever to do that. Um, the other end of the spectrum is that you use outputs as your indicator. And, and, you know, we're not a big fan of that. You've seen that all the time, you know, so, you know, the job here is to produce 50 drawings. We've produced 40 of them. We're at 80% complete or, We've got 50 of them that are all 80% complete, so we're still at 80% complete, and, and that's the value that we've, that we've earned. Well, what about the quality of the information? What about the completeness of the, of the design? What about, um, you know, some sort of indicator about whether the right decisions were made up, right up front and whether we captured the right requirements and they, were, and they were caught in the right way? Those sort of things are totally overlooked. Um, so I think probably, um, you know, the, 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 most, the best practical solution is a, is a bit of a hybrid of, of the two and we, you know we, we spend a fair bit of time designing rules of credit for use in design and you tend to earn quite a lot of the value towards the back end when the outputs come out in reality but we we try to make sure that some of the value is earned at the front end as well and through the process and it, it, it's not all about the value turning up at the back end when you've got a pile of drawings on the desk yeah no that's interesting and i'm glad you said that because i actually had a bit of a debate um those that listen to the pod probably know that we love a bit of a debate on this podcast anyway and i was i was saying that we should have rules of credit in place and the mm. argument from one of the fellow professionals shall we call it on the on the on the client um, side said well no we, we shouldn't because that's not accurate the most accurate way is to ask the engineer and it comes back to your earlier point on one man's 85 percent is another one man's yeah and, and uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> That's a terrible idea uh, to, to ask the engineers. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> there's some value in it, but I wouldn't do it uh, necessarily. Um, the, the other thing is, of course, when you've got a set of outputs, they are the result of all pretty much, you know, in all cases, you know, all of the discipline's input. So you've got a coordinator. So you might, you might have a, a lighting layout or, or, or a, you know, a, 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 an electrical specification. And, okay, that's an electrical document, but it but it results from a coordinated process involving all of the disciplines. So how are you going to ask one of the engineers about the completeness and the level of quality of all of that information that's flown all the way through the process to get you to, to that document? You, you just can't. You need to understand the steps along the way and whether the right things are being done. 
at the right time to get you to get you to that document or to get you to a coordinated design model that happens to spit out those documents. That's the that that, that that's the kind of um, the the key to it. I think is understanding it's a multidisciplinary process to get to even a single discipline document. W- would you ever try and convince all the stakeholders that earned value is not the right measure method of measure? No, I think I think earned value. Is there a better way, basically, is what I'm trying to ask? No, is there another I think, way? I, th- I think earned value works, mm-hmm. um, but, but get your rules of credit right. Understand them and understand them, you know, and it won't be perfect, in a, but it rarely is. Um, and understand where the limitations are within design and that it's, it, it's perhaps um, to some extent an approximation what, what, you're, you know, what you're getting out of it in terms of, in terms of the metrics are, are only as good as your, as your rules of credit. And you, 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 you asked a question. I'm going, to, I'm going to go off on a bit of a slight tangent, but I realised I didn't answer one of your earlier questions. <laughs> you asked about rolling wave planning, and yeah, absolutely. We, you, this was when you were talking about baselining. Yeah, you, you, you um, on a huge project, big programmes of work, you do have to do that. You do have to recognise that you can't necessarily um, work out precisely what's going to go on at the final throes of the design and engineering stage at the very early, early stages, and there has to be some... To some extent, you have to plan it on that rolling wave basis. Uh, a really, you know, the best example probably being that uh, at the point where you st- you're, you're engaged in in a, the concept stage, you, you haven't necessarily decided how to procure the specialist subcontractor input, and they and uh, you know, and the, therefore the design input that they make. So, you, you know, you, you can't you can't plan that stage and define that stage in 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 the in the, the uh, at the highest level of detail. To what extent would 3D, 4D BIM help with measuring progress in design? Uh, so, for, so it, we, 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 it's a really interesting one. How? Because obviously, when you when you look at 4D planning, you've typically got uh, a fairly well developed model, and you're then comparing that to a fairly well developed construction program, or lining it with a fairly well con- developed construction program. We've done bits and pieces of work whereby uh, you link together uh, a, a very early stage model to a construction program, and and you can start to look at uh, you know as you'd expect, you can start to look at options for both um, construction phasing, but also for design development. That's that's a really interesting area, and I'd like to see more done in that uh, in that regard. That doesn't that doesn't really address the question of of progress. Um, I think you know for four D planning, we we do bit, we we do a fair bit of four D planning, and in terms of measuring uh, progress through the entire project, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, comparing a baseline to the to the to the reality of, of how a project's going in that very graphical form is is uh, is, is a really powerful um, you know powerful tool. Um, yeah, there's there's more to be done, I think, in terms of achieving that same outcome when you're looking at design progress. But there's probably there's probably you know, there's probably quite big opportunities there when you're uh, looking at maturity of the design information. If you think of progress in those forms, the quality of the design information mm. might take that one away and do some do 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 some work on that one. Yeah, in a, in a, in um, previous episodes, we spoke about didn't we, Martin, gamification um, mm. of projects, and perhaps how you know you could you could put a project into. Um, a gamified space, perhaps yeah. you know, in the in the Xbox or the PS5 yeah. space, and have people take them through all the life cycle stages of of a project, and you almost have this simulated version done by real people, yeah. 
almost in essence for free because if you're making it a game, you let people play it. And you have, whether you want to call it digital twins or, um, you know, artificial simulations um, and multiple versions of them, you could you could ultimately come up with a project plan design um, construction with all the environmental factors, mm. cradle to grave, as a blueprint. Mm. This is how you deliver where you deliver. So maybe there's something yeah. to talk about there. Well, I saw some logistics planning being done in a 4D environment just recently. I was on LinkedIn and... Uh and, and that was, and that was, you know, appeared to be being done in Minecraft, which, uh, which my son would have appreciated as, as much as anybody else. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely something there. You, you, you're dead right. And, and you know, that, that's kind of the 4D side of, of BIM and, and planning. Um, just, you know, the advent of BIM over the last, uh, what, 15, 20 years has, has totally changed what the design process looks like. So we, we, you know, we model the design process with the design teams and we've got some generic models, you know, taking advantage of the kind of things that Latham and Egan were talking about, the repeatability of the process for libraries of, of design process, well, modules of design process. And as, as, beca- uh, as, as you know, um, modelling became um, more, more commonplace, we, we had to totally change those models because, you know, you went from... Um, producing drawings as a way of proving that the thing was coordinated to producing to adding objects into a model mm. and in, and checking that they were coordinated as a way of proving the coordination so the process looks looked um somewhat different um it it still it still needs a process that's one of the things <laughs> we definitely learned you still need a process um one more from me before i bring machine gun martin in shifting sl- into the risk space now and correct me if i'm wrong in my mind, I'm thinking in design, in the design stage of a project, I'm thinking your uncertainty is quite large and your risk events are quite small. And then when you get into construction, it's the other way around because you have a design on which you are constructing. So you're more certain, but your risk events perhaps are a bit bigger. Is that true or false? What, what's your experience? Um, I think it probably should be true. Um, <laughs> that assumes that you've got a completed design at the point when you're starting to Fair enough, yep, to build and, and complete enough at the point where you procure. Um, so cer- certainly at the early stages of design, you've got, you've got this huge level of uncertainty and that's, that's, that's fine. And you're, you're sort of maturing the design, uh, reducing the uncertainty, reducing the risk, also reducing the uh, reducing the opportunity. Yes. So you're kind of constraining yourself. The more you do, and the and the more um, you know, the, the more complete the design the design gets. So getting the right decisions made right up front, you know, is even you know, is the earlier you are, the more important it is. Um, obviously, you can you can appear to be um, reducing risk by virtue of getting further through the life cycle of the, the design stages. But, but we know, you know, it talks about assumptions and the fact that they represent risk. If, if you've got lots and lots of assumptions being made, you've, you, you've, you've got what appears to be a mature design, but, but it's actually based on assumptions and those, those can, can, you know, can represent risk both in the design and, and uh, you know, through into the construction stage. Um, but yeah, ideally, I mean, if you, if you, if you went back to pre-design and build days, and I'm sure there are still our contracts that did, did delivered, you know, in, a, in that traditional way. We, we don't really see them, certainly not in the UK. 
um, you know, the contractors taking on no real risk associated with the design because they're buying the design, they're building it exactly as designed. Any any problem with that design, the client pays for. Um, so yeah, you've you've got a you've got a situation there where the, all the risk is kind of closed down and and um, and, a, and, a, and as far as design risk is concerned, a risk-free construction process, pretty pretty much. Um, so at least that's the theory, I guess. Um, but in you know, obviously in design and build, which we you know we all see all the time. Um, there's plenty of examples around, and I've seen, you know, I've seen them over the years, and, and we all have of um, contractors finding that what they're trying to build can't be built, or um, you know, isn't coordinated in the way it appears to be coordinated in a set of drawings, and um, and and yeah, you know, that, that who's paying for that? More often than not, it's the contractor. They're having to pick up the bill for it. Yeah, I mean, we can probably get into commercial space as well, but before we do, Machine Gun Martin. You've been sitting there listening in. I know you love this space as well. It's controls. <laughs> what have you got for Paul? <laughs> no, no, it's been really fascinating subject to, as ever. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go back to one of your earlier, earlier points and thinking back to when Dale, Val and I worked together, we, we found that many of the engineers had some quite strong views on the application of project controls and planning, some just ranging from, you know, sod off, let us do the work, to, to wanting to know the, the minutiae of, of detail, all the hours, dependencies, activities. In, in terms of interactions with the project management team and, and giving a consistent message, do you find it's better to let the, the engineering work package managers be that sole interface, or do you prefer to get everyone involved in the process and, and let the, the project managers speak to the end, to the guys actually doing the work? How how do you try and manage that that message on a on a project? Yeah, yeah re realistically, you've got to do it through the engineering managers, discipline leads, um, kind of level. Just because it's it's kind of a, a chaos if you if you start involving absolutely everybody. But you, you, you're dead right. There's um, you know there's very uh, widely differing views among among a typical engineering team, design engineering team about what an appropriate level of definition of the process is. Um, and some of that is because they maybe don't see the value of having uh, a process that's defined in detail or perhaps um, they're going to be controversial now. Perhaps they feel it exposes them somewhat if there's a, if there's a level of definition there around the process that, that then you know, allows some degree of measurement of, of their performance in delivering that process. Um, I'm sure there's, there's something in that from time to time. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I can think of examples outside of construction, in fact, uh, as well as in construction, where you know you talk to two different disciplines, and one of you, one of them will define you know hundreds of activities, and the other will define seven. You know, and it's kind of what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Um, so yeah, now that's part of the skill of of uh, of building one of these things and defining these. And this is where some of these generic libraries help out as well. Um, you know, we're trying to get a consistency across the disciplines, the systems, the the the, the phases. Um, and and kind of steer it towards an appropriate outcome in terms of a plan, a definition of the process, and then the, and then the plan. Without uh, at the same time, without us saying, "Oh, you, you don't worry about any of this. We'll go away in a corner and do this for you," because we absolutely must have them bought into it. But yeah, rather than go talk to every engineer on the project, we tend to talk to the discipline leads at that at that level, and then they become the they become the the kind of owner of of their of their part of the plan there is there is only a single plan uh, i must re re reiterate that fact there is a single integrated plan but 
down on the ground, it maybe feels like they've got their part of the plan that they're delivering. As long as, they're deliver as, long as everybody's delivering it in a very joined up way, then, then uh, you know, you've got an integrated process. And, and at the start of the project, when you are doing that initial definition, you're building your WBS, finding the activities and the interdependencies, do you try and get as many people involved in that process as possible, or do you try and stick with the, the leads? Yeah, again, the and, leads. And just have again, that interaction and experience. Yeah, again, again, the leads, the leads and the specialists and the, the real specialists. Um, so that would be, you know, on a, on a say on a building project, you're talking the architect, structural engineer, um, civil engineer, if they're different to the structural engineer, mechanical, electrical, and then you might have the facade specialist. Uh, M&E, by the way, is probably a contractor nowadays, aren't they? They're, they're probably a, uh, you know, a primary consultant or, or, or you know, contractor. Or con yeah. yeah, or contractor. Yeah, if they're a contractor, they might be outsourcing it to a consultant. And then you've got the fire, acoustics, access, you know, whatever the project is and, and whatever the requirements are. Um, and then, you know, you've also, of course, got project management, client side, uh, you know, contractor and, and then client um project management and and you've very definitely got the procurement team i'm going to give a special shout out to the procurement team and that's because you know i mentioned earlier on that more and more designs being undertaken by well, at least you know in, there's an input to it from specialist subcontractors and to get that design input to get that information flowing in in a joined up way you have to have them procured um and we've seen projects in the past that have run quite happily and, and we you know with quite solid performance um, through to the point where you require the specialist subcontractor input only to find that they're not appointed because there's some change of strategy on the procurement side or there's some deal to be done by combining packages together or splitting them apart or holding off and and you know that's that's unraveling that 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 design process so we we work with the procurement team as well and get them to see that, that those procurements are part of that design process but yeah dis dis discipline lead level really martin because we can't we just can't on a big project, we can't realistically go talk to everybody. Yeah, I, I think that's point. The you know, it's about managing the message and, and giving the right and consistent message to the to the delivery teams. Really, um, just as a, a follow on from that, and again, it's about buy in. So when you are in that delivery phase, how do you go about getting buy in from the the guys doing the work in in terms of managing dates? So. You know, thinking back to Dale and I's um, our time on on a rail project, engineers would have very different views on the the real completion dates to what the the program may say and what the project managers are expecting of them. How do you manage that that challenge? Is it very much yeah. through a single point of contact within the engineering team, or or do you do you try and you know when when some people are telling you that's absolutely not going to happen how do you go about managing that message and massaging the egos dare i say yeah so we'd use two things one's a huge carrot and the other's an even bigger stick um <laughs> no uh well i'm saying no like like that isn't true it, it absolutely is true um we, we so first off we try to um if necessary you'd hope that most of the people we work with on most of our projects kind of get all this stuff uh even, even if they're not uh, you know even if they need a bit of a reminder of it um, so we're trying to remind people in the projects that actually having an integrated process with information flowing in the right way at the right time benefits them. Uh, we used to talk about you making more money out of the project, um, less rework, less unexpected rework, less, less abortive work. 
some people might be interested in that. It's amazing still how many people are not. Um, that's not what floats their boat. Um, so that, so there's a there's a bit of a kind of an education piece, um, and we and we do talk a lot about commitment, and you as the designers making a commitment to deliver to this plan for the success of the project. Uh, we also expect the client, whether that's the contractor or the client or both, to keep making that point on our behalf, on their behalf, bearing in mind we're typically working for them and this is all about them benefiting. So keep making that point that this is for everyone's benefit, not just theirs. If if you know if they've got good quality information to procure and build from, then everybody's walking away with a profit and with less pain. You know, most designers don't want to be on the end of some pain from the contractor. Um, and then, you know, so that's, that's a lot of the carrot. And then, you know, there's a bit of stick if needed, I guess. Um, if, and it let, let's just say for a moment, just bear with me. I know this is practically impossible to believe <laughs> that you put in place a process that's backed up by a plan, distribute that among the team. And then they put it in the bottom drawer. I mean, they don't print it out anymore to put it in the bottom drawer, but you know what I mean? They file it in the. In, a, in somewhere in the depths of SharePoint and just go about doing what they were always planning to do and undertaking the activities that suit them at the time rather than following the integrated plan. That, you wouldn't believe it, I know, but that, that, that can happen. Um, uh, and, you know, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. That's delivering design for a discipline. Well, that's not what we're about. That's not what the project is about. It's about, that's like a subcontractor on site going off and building their own thing with total disregard for the other subcontractors and the, and the sequence of work across subcontracts. You'd never stand for it. You'd put a stop to it immediately. And we expect that to, to you know, stop to be put to that. And, and again, it's just, when that happens, put a stop to it. We expect the contractor to put a stop to it, the client to put a stop to it, the lead designer to put a stop to it. And a bit of re-education to go on and say, look, you know, that's not working for the project. These, the, this is the process we're following. These are the things that need doing. You might not need to do these things for your own benefit right now, but they benefit the others on the project who are going to do their piece of work, and that's going to come back and benefit and benefit you and everybody else. So yeah, a bit of bit of bit of both, but um, it's not unheard of for um, for. Uh, the the well crafted honed process to be um to take a bit of bedding in i think you might say martin <laughs> yeah definitely um yeah I, again i think in, in my experience I, I think most engineers had quite a positive view on it everyone had understood the concept of managing to a budget you know you have a set mm. amount of cost or hours and you manage a task to that and you know i, I found that a fairly positive experience when when dealing in that space um my last question, and I'm going to probably ask Dale to dig me out if I open a can of worms here. Um, if we go on the subject of engineering change versus project change, how, how, in your experience, how do you get the right level of detail to satisfy both needs? And what are the interactions between the two things? So I'm almost thinking of a, a technical change is, you know, you, you need to change the design by a few millimeters. And at what level do you go and inform the project manager that you know there's a something in the, in the budget or the schedule may need changing how do you satisfy both both needs um yeah so first off it's probably worth saying that in our experience change is very badly assessed very often in, in the design stage 
Uh, we see lots and lots of change being accommodated, you know, within the design, crowbarring the design without any real thought about how long it's going to take and what it's going to cost. Obviously, NEC is, you know, changing that, and we're massive fans of, of, of NEC if, if implemented in the right way because it puts program right at the right at the centre of the of the of the management of the contract. You know, forces people into into that sort of deep thinking that we that we like them to like them to always have when it comes to change. But we've seen lots and lots of examples of changes that aren't thought through, that seem very minor, that get squeezed in, and before you know it, what what was minor has grown you know grown legs and is and is now you know sort of spiralling somewhat out of control and costing lots of money, um, costing the designers lots of money. So I think. Um, having some sort of basic process for um, assessing any change, um, no matter how small it might seem. And, you know, if you do the assessment and it, and it says, it throws up, right, okay, there's no real knock-on impact from this, we can accommodate it, then go for it. Great, job, jobs are good and you've, you've, not, you've not wasted anything. Um, but for those occasions where it, you know, where it is bigger than, 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 than you realise, the design team realise, you need... You need that process. And we, we, we're going to argue here, of course I am, that having a well-defined process in detail with all of those dependencies allows you to do that in a way that you might not, um, might not otherwise have had. So that's kind of protecting the, the design team and the, and, the, and the wider project team from those, those kind of changes that work their way in when, and, and don't really um you know don't necessarily get, get thought about obviously when you when you you know when you get those huge you know change requirement comes along um you know you want to assess the impact of that and build a new program and re, you know and rebaseline that's 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 part of the process and again you know we'd we'd you take advantage of the fact that there's a detailed process in place to allow us to do that and we might even have to build a new process if they're that significant mm. um but that all of those scenarios, all of those change scenarios, are really about protecting the, the, all of the parties involved to make sure that they understand before they in, in, before they implement them, understand uh, what's involved and what the implications of them are. And you know, we've all seen those examples where you think if it was really understood what was involved, you'd have never done it, you'd have never implemented it, you'd have, the client would have been talked out of it. You know, there's so much money being spent on design implementing that change. And that it's taken so long that it's now impacted procurement and construction. It's now it's now slowing the job down on site. You'd never done it, um, but it's is, not. Is know, this where perhaps it comes down to how well defined your scope is as well? Yeah, I mean the the relationship <laughs> between defining the scope and designing the process. You know, that, 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 yeah. that's a there's a there's a perfect relationship between those two things. If you don't, if you can't define the the, the process. Um, because obviously part of defining the process is, is, is determining who's doing what. Yeah. And only one party ever does any one thing. You don't have, we, we never define a process that's got multiple parties responsible for anything because that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. So you must understand the scope in order to define the process. Um, yeah, yeah, a, a, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking if, if, it's, if it's well enough defined and the engineering change is not deemed a scope change, and it doesn't impact cost, time, or quality, then for me, that flies under the radar. That's within the engineer's gift. You uh, want to track it. You want to capture it. 
but you don't necessarily have to put it through strict change control. Yeah, it'll cost you yeah, more. Yeah, to yeah, right. put it yeah. Through sorry, it. yeah. And Martin mentioned engineering change, and I and I and I was talking more about project change. Yeah. Uh, yeah so you've got an alternative engineering solution. Yeah, go, mm. go for it, but but still recognise what might be involved in terms of the time that's required yeah. and the impact that might have. And there's probably lots of examples of. Well, this Those is, seemingly small-scale engineering changes that have no impact, that turn out to have a huge impact well, this, because yeah, that's not been thought of. This is where I'm thinking, you know, this is where systems thinking comes into play and complexity of projects, right? As we say, I think Dave Snowden said it before, you know, you, know, you might pull on this twig over here, you don't know what moves yeah. over there. Yeah. And is this perhaps where sort of the digital environment comes into play, the digital twin perhaps, mm. um, you know, we spoke about digital engineering, yeah. 4D modeling, where you know if you make a change there mm. in the virtual world, you know what impact it may have. Yeah, that definitely the opportunity there to quickly see that that seemingly small change. Yeah. Oh, suddenly we've now got a slightly bigger problem, but still pretty small. We can fix that. Let's. Fix. Oh, uh, now hang on. It's you know growing. growing. Yeah, it's it's, it's under the microscope. It's a it's a small change for this area, but then yeah. as you zoom out, you actually go, oh, oh crap! It's yeah. actually impacting this and that. Look, I want to make a little bit of space. You mentioned NEC. Now, if there's a contractor that's designing and it's ambiguous in terms of timescales, there's a lot of uncertainty involved, how do we get to a place where we can actually have accepted programs every single period? Oh. Uh, design programs, design and engineering programs. <laughs> well, look, the, isn't the program a forecast, right? It's a forecast. It's not, it, it, no, one, no one at any point is, is, is necessarily claiming we are going to build it precisely as set out in a plan. It, For, it was you know, a you commitment got, got, 10 minutes ago. Got, you, no, no, it's still <laughs> a commitment. It's still a commitment. I'm talking about the construction program now, Martin. <laughs> you know, if you've got years worth of construction work, um, there's, there's, you know, there's got to be an acceptance that in the short term, you, you, you're highly committed to delivering what's on that plan in the way that is set out on that plan. But longer term, there's a bit of vagueness starting to creep in. Anybody who claims otherwise is, is, is you know, you're barking up the wrong tree, I think. Um, but it's still, it's still a legit forecast. It's the best we can do at this point. It best represents what we believe the plan um, to look like. And the, and the same applies in design. So, yes, um, we, you know, there might be some uncertainty there. But what we've put in place is our best forecast. We absolutely, I'm going to pick you up there, Martin. We absolutely get a commitment out of the design team to deliver to it. But but this is what the short term, uh, this is what the short term weekly weekly work planning is about because that's where you're really absolutely getting your commitment to deliver in the week or in the or in the two week period or whatever it might be. Uh, but but yeah, long term, like I mentioned, yeah, you know, sort of rolling wave approach where long term there might be a bit of um, a, 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 you know a bit of vagueness about how we're going to get the subcontractors involved or. Um, you know what's happening in the in the in the detail design stage if we're still in the concept design stage of the project um but yeah it's it as long as it represents um our our best forecast then there's there should be no reason why it's not acceptable and you're smiling at me Dale, because you because <laughs> i know that you, you and i know what it looks like to struggle to get uh, or indeed to be on the client side and to have a long period of time without an accepted program um but I think, you know, I don't think we were guilty of it uh, in, that, in that scenario I'm smiling about. But uh, we, you know, we certainly know of examples where the default position is 
that the program sh- should you know should find a reason for not accepting. Um, whereas you know I think I think very strongly that the default position should be that it's accepted unless you can really unless it really absolutely have to have to find a reason not to. No, good points. And yeah, I mean, we could probably do a whole new podcast on, you mm. know, accepted programs under NEC in the design mm. phase, and we could all share our war stories. Um, I want to ask one more thing around sustainability um, built into design. How much of a thing are you seeing it being today versus, say, five, 10 years ago? Is it, is it, is it a conscious effort to build in sustainability outcomes in design or are you still not seeing that no. type of thing no still not seeing it not in any not in any real way i don't think that's shocking. i'm not yeah colleagues of mine might might say they are um beyond you know beyond the sort of activities you'd expect to see in a plan around you know reviews and um, processes such as, as Briam and SQL, which you know would be step would be would be part of the scope to, for delivering the project. I'm not I'm not seeing anything, you know, anything um, meaningful in any mean you know in any significant way. That is a sad situation to mm. be in, I think, mm. for us. And 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 I think um, it was Joe Lucas that mentioned a few episodes ago. Is it Clause X26 in NEC4 that's come in around a sustainability clause that can now be exercised. Mm. Um, and it feels like still, if, if we're not actually mandating it commercially, that organizations aren't, aren't inclined to do it mm. other than it being a box-ticking exercise. I mean, we've just experienced here in the UK, right, from sub-zero degrees to double digits yeah. within a day. Yeah, within twenty-four hours, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely right. If that is not a sign yeah. of climate change, mm. and it's not an agenda. It is real things that happen, and we have a real opportunity to change that mm. through delivering our projects. And it has to start with design, surely. Yeah, I guess it does. I guess it does. Is there anything we can do to influence that if we're working on design projects, whether it be from a controls perspective? Uh, engineering perspective, clients, in anything that we can, I guess, I guess, yeah, I mean, there must be, mustn't there? I, I, I wonder whether, um, you know, more, um, you know, I mentioned those types of, you know, a couple of processes there and, and, and compliances, you know, m- maybe if there's, um, a requirement to put more of that into the plan mm-hmm. and do more reviews at the appropriate times you know i think often those don't quite happen at the right time yeah. you know, we talked about as the life cycle didn't we and how you, you you the opportunities diminish as the process as the process moves on you know the risk the risk reduces but the opportunities diminish so the opportunities are at the you know at the very front end take advantage of those opportunities at the front front end but then review frequently as you go and at the right times to ensure you're still achieving those opportunities that you set out to from a sustainability perspective i think you know my experience is rather depressing a lot of my experiences are very depressing um that uh you you know ultimately the (laughs) uh, ultimately you know the constructability of the thing and the cost of construction are, are generally winning the argument still yeah yeah we live in a capitalist society right yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, I understand that those are 
Anyway, I think away it's going to be a lot of their time, but it's um, yeah, it's those, those sorts of decisions, you know, happen like that. N- nothing to it. Yeah. Whereas all the work that goes into driving it the other way, weeks and months of work, and then you know, decisions about cost, governing of flash. Well, let's end on a slightly higher note. What is your outlook for twenty three? How uh, you know might we be delivering projects differently? What do you see as, I mean, the past year or 18 months, maybe even 24 months, the big area of focus has been, and maybe pandemic-driven, been on risk. Mm. Right? How do we get better um, at managing risk on projects? Mm. Do you see that continuing being the theme, or do you see something different for, for 23? Yeah, I think it will continue. Um, I, I, I think um, there's, there's, you know, We've, we've, we've probably got a lot better over the last few years in terms of our understanding of risk and uh, our modelling of it. Um, and and that, that, that will undoubtedly, you know, continue. I'm sure it will through 23. Well, one of the big things I'd like to see for 23, so I'm not quite answering the question here because you asked me what, what I think is going to happen. I'm going to tell you what I'd like to happen. So I'd like to see a lot more face-to-face. Yes. I'd like to see our design teams going back to being co-located more than they more than they are now i'd like to see that that sort of you know round the round the coffee machine kind of conversation more over the over the over the partition as we used to do it back in back in the day you know the different disciplines talking to each other more of that and less reliance on the the weekly or the the, the fortnightly design team meeting which invariably nowadays is a is a you know is a teams meeting. I'm not going to knock it because we're online here talking to Martin. So you know it, we, we get don't, invited to we come know, to Birmingham. We know <laughs> we know that, that you know we know those work, but um, in terms of um, you know our interest in design and, and engineering and progressing those processes, a bit of face to face really helps. So I'd like to think that there might be a bit more of that. But I ne- I think it needs some effort. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, I think you know it's just we carry on as we are we're going to carry on with a lot more you know with a lot of remote working and a lot of uh, virtual meetings so i think we need to we need to make the effort to get people together make it clear that there's that's part of the expectation and that, and that it's part of the expectation because we recognize there's value in it there's there's benefit for for the project but there's there's benefit for them so i think um you know that that's a that's something i'd like to see uh, see more of i think um i'd also like to see and, and i think this will this will continue to happen. Um, higher quality um, project controls in the design and engineering stage of projects. I think NEC is, is doing that. Um, people are understanding more and more that it's not just for the construction stage, it's for the design and engineering stage as well. And that you know, if you want to um, run the contract effectively, you have to have um, a high quality plan in place and you have to administer the contract the way it was the way it was intended and i think you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll see more we'll you know we'll see more of that and that will that'll benefit people like me who and and my organization who um uh you know espouse the the, the, the virtues of of, of uh, you know of high quality process definition in the design and engineering stage um and i think you know, I'd also like to think that um, we'll we'll see a more, uh, uh, you know, a kind of growing understanding of what it is that drives design, and that's that's that information 
production. So we took going all the way back to the very beginning and rules of credit and what is it that's a value in, in the design process and in the, in the engineering process. It's not about the outputs. They come about from um, high-quality information being produced and exchanged. Maybe we can get a bit more of that to, you know, that kind of thinking um, kind of going. I think more, you know, more of the clients are, are starting to pick up on it. I'd like to think they are. Well, the more we talk about it, I guess, the more they yeah. will and, you know, yeah. keep challenging yeah. the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we still see lots who just go to that, you know, we used to joke about it and, and, and sort of talk about it as though as though it was a reality and, and, and never really believe that it was. But I think maybe it is, you know, although you know, 80% of it's in the construction, 80% of the cost in the construction, that's what I'm going to manage. I'm going to manage the construction. Well, how many projects have got to go wrong? because of failings in the design stage and poor quality information being available for construction purposes before people really start thinking a bit more deeply about managing the design properly. Mm. You know, don't win a contract and then, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't leave your subbies to manage themselves. You, you, yeah. you manage them. So, you know, don't manage the designers in the way you manage your subbies necessarily. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite going that far. But, but, but do manage the process of producing and delivering design information for your own benefit. If you're a client, if you're a contractor, and if you're the designers, benefits them as well because everyone wins. Yeah, you get an integrated process. You fly through it, high quality information. Everybody walks away with a successful project, having made a bit of money out of it. What's not to love? Yeah, I love that you you talk about eighty twenty and that twenty percent that actually drives that eighty percent, which is fantastic. But also, a plug for PCG Project Connect Group in mm -hmm. London next year, 2nd of Feb. I know you've you've come to a few of them, Paul, so I'll be hopefully there. see you there. Um, it's it's a great event, Martin. We um, have lots of fun at Project Connect oh, Group definitely. and we started doing debate or discussion panels, um, which is great as well. All three turn up. You don't have to pay for a ticket. Um, there's no ticket to pay for. Just come and join us and have fun. But before we let you go, Paul, we do have some features. Um, and for that, I'm going to hand you to Machine Gun Martin. Okay. Um, yeah, as Dale said, we've got time for a couple of features. We're going to bring one back. Um, it's called Defend the Indefensible. So it's where we ask our guests to defend a ridiculous statement for 30 seconds. So if you're willing, um, let's, let's give it a go. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay. He so. says that without knowing the topic. Go on, okay. away. So, Paul, your statement to defend for 30 seconds is... Project Controls offers absolutely no benefit to design engineering. The best approach is to let the experts do what they're best at and it'll happen when it happens. Discuss. There's nothing to defend. You're quite right. <laughs> we've, been doing that, we've been doing that for 20, 30, 40 years. What's been going wrong? Nothing. Every project is success. Just let the experts get on with it, do what they want to do. Every project makes money. Every project has the best quality design information available when the job's procured, best quality design information available when it's built. That's all you need to know. Project controls, total waste of time. Uh, like a good engineer, you're pretty much bang on time as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for that. That was painful. That was painful, Martin. <laughs> you can see the wincing uh, over, over Zoom there. Right, last one. Uh, so it's called Fiverr. So it's five quick fire questions all about yourself. So number one, what's your one piece of advice for people new to the engineering profession? Talk to other people in other disciplines. 
good shout. Number two, what's the biggest misconception about engineering? Ooh, biggest misconception. Um, that it isn't inspiring and creative. It absolutely <laughs> is. Brilliant. Are good leaders born or made? Both. Well, can I have both? That's a cop-out. What would be your book recommendation to our listeners? Uh, I've just read uh, the follow-up to Prisoners of Geography, The Power of Geography. Um, really interesting. Got a really interesting uh, section in it about about uh, Saudi Arabia. Recommend it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Prisoners mm. of Geography. Yeah, learned lots of lots I didn't know about Saudi Arabia. Oh, great shot. Yeah, I'll look that one up. Power and of finally, geography. if you had your time again, would you go straight into mechanical engineering, project management, something, something different? Oh, no, I'd go straight. To, well, I'd, I'd, I'd be where I am now. I love it. Design <laughs> management. Absolutely love it. I'd probably have to go into, pro, into mechanical engineering in order to get into design management. But no, I wouldn't go into another field. Absolutely would not. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Love it, Paul. It's been amazing to have you for the best part of an hour. Um, thank you so much for giving up some of your time, sharing your insights. Um, I'm sure, you know, the listeners will take plenty away from it. Um, it I hope you've had fun. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, guys. Yeah. Um, anything before we let you go you want to leave our listeners with? Don't underestimate the importance of your design process. That would be it. I, when, I talk to, when I talk to students, I'm talking often to um, construction management students, you know, normally on a master's module, and they were all going to go out and become construction managers. I know they're going to go out and come, become construction managers. Very few of them are going to be design managers. But I like to say to them, don't ignore the design process. Don't just go out and manage construction. You must also manage design, or, your, or at least your organizations must and your project teams must manage design. You're neglecting one of the resources that you require to build the job if you don't manage design. So go and do it, make a success of it, manage the design process, manage the flow of design information across your members of your project team. Amazing, amazing stuff. Martin, any final thoughts from you? No, nothing to add. That was really great. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me, guys. No, it's been our pleasure, our privilege. Um, and yeah, thank you again, once again, for your time. We'll love to have you back on any other topics. There's a few that we... Uh, yeah, there's others we could talk about. We didn't go down some rabbit holes that, yes. that, was, that were definitely there and evident. But no, thank you so much for your time. Folks, as we say, that's all the time we have for this episode. But if you like what you heard, please do help us pay it forward by sharing a link to this episode on your favorite social media. Once again, a massive thank you to our guest, Mr. Paul Westcott. And thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe. Be disruptive and have fun doing it. From me and Martin, it's bye for now. Project Shadow supports and is a member of Zero Construct. Zero Construct is a new working group that wants to lower carbon construction. Not everyone will be aware, but construction contributes to around 12 to 15% of total carbon emissions. This is a staggering amount and we need to reduce it. We are a growing community of people that want to help make this change. Everyone is welcome, whether you're an engineer, contractor, or consultant. You just need to want to make a difference. Our aim is to grow a network of experts so we can all learn from each other and make a positive impact in the places where we work. We'll do this by sharing knowledge and making it accessible in engaging ways. To join us and find out more, please visit zeroconstruct.com and register as a member. Thank you, and we look forward to speaking with you soon.
information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch via our website. You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.